0: The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, this is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perry columnist for Stockhead. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. Now, the US election has come and sorted gone, with uh, Democrat Joe Biden just waiting for Donald Trump to hand over the keys to the White House. As we all know, the outcome of any US election has widespread ramifications for global economics and policy directions, with industries affected to varying degrees when there's uh, ever a change at the White House. Today's particular interest, though, is what Joe Biden's arrival will mean for the uranium industry. Is it a negative or is it a positive? If you looked at some of the mutterings out of the US since the uh, election, you would think it's a negative when framed against Biden's renewable energy agenda. But is it truly a negative? To help us answer that question, we've got Brandon Munro with us today. Brandon is Chief Executive Officer of the uranium developer, Batterman Resources. Baderman owns the Tango Uranium Project in Namibia, the southern African country which has a 40-year history of uranium production. The company trades under the code BMN or Bravo Mike November and was last quoted at 3.8 cents for a market cap of about 40 million. Tango has a globally significant, and I must say, a strategic resource base of 271 million pounds of uranium, with Bannerman positioning itself to capitalise on the inevitable recovery in uranium prices from the currently depressed levels through a staged development strategy. Just why price recovery is inevitable is something I will also be asking Brandon to discuss, along with the company's plans for Tango, of course. With that, I'm going to welcome Brandon to the podcast and say, G'day, Brandon, and thanks for your time today.
1: Well, thanks very much, Barry. It's a pleasure to be on and great to be talking to you.
0: Right. So, okay, I posed the the big question earlier. A Joe Biden presidency, is it a negative or positive for the uranium sector? Well, it's definitely a positive,
1: but I must say going into this US election wearing my uranium investor or uranium promoter hat, I didn't have a great deal of fear or trepidation. For the first time in a long time in US politics, nuclear power and its implications for uranium were well hedged for either outcome. The Trump administration has been quite supportive of nuclear power, and some of that has extended into the uranium sector. And what we saw with the Democrat policy platform is for the first time, literally in decades, a strong leaning towards nuclear power. Now, that's driven predominantly by their climate goals. And you said in the introduction that it isn't so obvious to many people that nuclear power is going to play a really big part in that. And I think a lot of that is just that our media, both in the US but certainly in Australia, isn't interested in including the words nuclear power in brackets. So all of the attention is being given to obviously renewables and the negative stance against coal. But the moment you start delving into the details and reading what the Democrats and Joe Biden himself are putting out on this subject, nuclear power is an absolutely essential part of their policy platform to address climate change. So from that perspective, it's, it is positive, both in the short term and the medium to longer term.
0: Right, OK. Now I think we all agree that uranium is in an interesting space. It's been demonised for decades by what I'll call the environmental. Environmental movement, which uh, which now seems to have, but there now seems to be bipartisan support with what I'll call now call the green movement, seeming to align with the view of the pro uranium brigade that zero emission nuclear power has a key role in the global warming challenge. Now that's all well and good, but why are why are prices still so depressed? Well, we have to look back to Fukushima to really understand
1: this picture, a- and perhaps we need to look back even further than that. So the night before Fukushima, I was sitting in Namibia, I lived there at that stage working for Bannerman as general manager, and uh, uranium uh, spot price was $74. And then, of course, we saw March 11, and a few days later, we saw the hydrogen explosion at Fukushima Daiichi Unit 3, and uh, the world really changed for uranium. It changed initially quite slowly, but the, the perhaps the... Secondary knock-on effects were relatively predictable at that point. Now, what it did, Barry, as you well know, but listeners might not, is it punched a significant hole in demand for uranium. The Japanese fleet of 49 operating reactors went down entirely for several years. Germany used it as an excuse for the Christian Socialist Party to enact a knee-jerk reaction uh, against nuclear power before they understood any of the facts associated with it. So Germany and, and Belgium and a couple of other European countries started scaling down their nuclear programs. And so by the end of 2011, demand for uranium was 10% less in terms of what was being consumed through nuclear reactors around the world. And in an industry where supply and demand is actually very, very finely balanced, uh, uranium's only used for nuclear fuel uh, in reactors. That meant that it was a big impact on the sector. However, the problem with that is that supply just carried on effectively as per normal. And that was because uh, traditionally this industry has been dominated by long-term contracts. So what the uranium producers were pushing into the market by the end of 2011 was only really to do with the Pricing that had been negotiated in long term contracts that dated back to 2005, 2006, 2007. And because of the huge boom we were having back then, a lot of those contracts were very, very attractively priced. So we didn't see a supply response. And that continued for several years, generating quite a significant overhang of inventory. We started to see that supply response occur uh, towards the well, at the end of 2016 and then again at the end of 2017. Um, by that stage, Kazatomprom had agreed to reduce their maximum um, production under their mining licences by 20%. And then, of course, we saw Cameco put the MacArthur River mine, the largest uranium mine in the world, ultimately into long-term care and maintenance, and that uh, that enormous mine still remains in that state. But it's still taken a few years to wash through that rather extensive build-up of inventory. But I think the good news for everyone listening out there, and particularly those investors who are wondering if maybe the time now is to start dipping the toe, we're seeing really tangible examples of that inventory overhang thinning out. And I think in the next price movement, the next lurch that we might see in uranium, we'll see that apparent overhang. Uh, really come
0: under signs of stress and potentially even disappear. Mm. And I guess this time around, uh, the climate change, decarbonisation, whatever you want to call it, uh, there's a global push underway and Biden's part of that with his uh, climate plan. Um, That is almost a, a new factor to be considered this time around. It really is. And I was
1: in the industry during the nuclear renaissance, which contributed to supply shock events in 2006 uh, to produce really what was an incredible not only uranium boom but commodities market boom. The boom between 2004 and 2007 in uranium can rival um, almost any commodities boom in, in recent times in terms of the spectacular impact on both commodity prices but equities. And during the nuclear renaissance, there was a lot of early stage Uh, enthusiasm for nuclear power, Uh, it was the beginning of broader acceptance of the Kyoto Protocol and so forth. And there was a lot of optimism and we saw um, examples of long-term anti-nuclear environmentalists softening or reversing their views. Now what's different now is we've got those factors, but we've now got a critical urgency at a time when the renewable sector has moved through that process of um, enormous optimism, uh, enormous hope as to what renewables can offer, and now that there's been you know wind power at quite an extensive range of development for twenty years or more, um, solar really peaking out in terms of what it can offer um, by scale. And uh, other large scale deployment of renewables. We're now moving through the cycle where reality is setting in. And in, in many instances, renewables is really a very effective way of providing clean energy. But policymakers and very slowly, general citizens are starting to realize that renewables is not a viable solution in all circumstances. And in fact, it's in many countries, it's only a viable solution in fairly limited circumstances and, and requires investment in carbon-emitting gas or very expensive storage to make it viable. It's in that backdrop that I think nuclear power is emerging uh, and having what's going to be its finest couple of decades since the technology was
0: first developed in the 50s. Right. Okay. If there's a particular part of Biden's climate uh, plan, that interested me was uh, there seems to be an emphasis on small modular reactors advanced uh, reactor technology developments does that this necess- that does not necessarily go to uranium demand it's just uh, it will be uh, more but smaller nuclear plants at close to where they're needed is that uh, how it will pan out you think well I think Barry you need to think in terms of time frames
1: here um, SMrs are becoming well advanced along the commercialisation pathway, but they're not there yet. So in terms of short-term uranium demand, they aren't going to have any uh, material or even conceivable impact. Mm. However, the moment you start going out into, say, the next decade into the 2030s, which perhaps is a long time period for investors, but it's certainly not a long time period for operators of nuclear power plants and buyers of uranium, the moment you start going into the 2030s, that's when SMRs will start to have an impact on uranium demand. And what's important here is they'll have that impact in two ways. The first way, which is a more direct impact, is that they, of course, consume uranium as part of their nuclear fuel. And for the large part, SMRs are being developed not as an alternative to conventional nuclear reactors, but as Uh, an additional market. They're being developed for areas of power need where a conventional reactor just simply wouldn't be viable, feasible, or would be too big. Mm. So the most interesting applications are, uh, for example, very remote locations, particularly remote locations in cold places where there's a need for um, process heat and um, community heating. Uh, There's a lot of talk now about coupling SMRs with hydrogen production, because it's far more efficient to produce hydrogen at in in a um, thermal process, which is requires huge amounts of heat, rather than a cold process, which is what the type of electricity that would be generated from solar or wind, for example.
0: Mm. Um,
1: a lot of SMRs have, uh, have the potential to be deployed into maritime shipping, which is still one of the dirtiest uh, aspects of our civilization. And when you compare what a maritime propulsion unit consumes versus heavy fuel oil or Arctic diesel, it's just extraordinary how much of a technological advantage is just sitting there waiting for us. It's been deployed in naval ships for 50 years and it works Mm. perfectly well. So it's those types of applications, Barry, that will expand the market and the requirement for uranium rather than needing to do a plus minus of how many SMRs we add and how many conventional reactors we take off. Now, I just finished with the second of these implications, which is a bit more indirect, but nonetheless, it's very important. And that is one that goes to public perception. So SMRs, small modular reactors, or even advanced reactors, they are far more palatable to the general public than the general public's perception of what conventional reactors are. Now, we could have a long conversation, Barry, about why the general public's perception of conventional reactors is wrong, but it's just too hard to convince people of that. And instead, Mm. where the nuclear industry is going is presenting a refreshed image of clean emissions-free nuclear power based on the SMR or advanced reactor models. And that in itself will soften attitudes, it will open communities up more towards an acceptance of nuclear power. And that's important in markets where there is a, a, let's say, a bottleneck in terms of community acceptance, such as in Australia. Mm. But we should also remember that the markets that are actually driving this industry, China, Russia, India, the Middle East, they don't have this hang up with nuclear power that we seem to have in Australia. So investors need to be careful they're not too parochial and perhaps listening to uh, what they might hear at their barbecue on a Saturday and extrapolating that to these huge development markets such as
0: China. Mm. With the SMRs, I guess if you distill it down, what we're talking about is something were to go wrong, it's a smaller problem than if you had a, a full scale. Uh, There's an element of that. Um, I mean, they, they have a
1: different design philosophy which mm. means that the capacity for something to go wrong in an SMR is at a statistically significant level zero. Mm. So if uh, you know if aliens would come to the planet trifford style and knock out every human, the SMR would just quietly shut down without any problems whatsoever. So they've got passive shutdown features, yeah. um, and for that reason. They can be placed inside cities. They can be placed in areas close to both industry and residential. Um, and again, it's a perception issue. Because there are newer technology, people will more readily accept that the, the risk is effectively
0: zero. Mm, uh, interesting development unfolding there. Now, you uh, touched on what I was going to ask next. Next, uh, as much as I've been talking about uh, the US, it's uh, really China, India. Russia, other places that are leading the uh, the growth in uh, installed uranium uh, nuclear capacity in years to come. Absolutely, and if,
1: if you look at just China, I mean, India is a huge market. Um, Russia, both domestically and with its capacity and success in exporting reactors, is also a huge market. But let's just look at China. Um, China faces an enormous air pollution issue at the moment, together with a, an economy that's growing, but more importantly, a large population that's urbanizing and achieving a, a big transformation from poverty to middle class. And with that comes televisions and washing machines and all of those things that consume a lot of electricity. So China's electrical growth profile is enormous. And you can pile onto that some very ambitious growth tar- It's for electric vehicles, which, of course, have to come directly from the grid. Now, China has made a political promise to its people to make the skies blue again. And issues associated with air quality have been universal. Mm. Um, Many examples of senior politicians within the Politburo whose kids have got asthma problems. Mm. It goes right through the, the entire Um, fabric of Chinese society, many Chinese business people and others who live outside of China because of health issues, etc. It really is a fundamental promise that the government has made. Now, they are the world's largest producer of hydropower, and they've got very little capacity to expand that source of emissions-free, pollution-free energy. and some of the wobbles that we had with the Three Gorges Dam a couple of months ago and its threat for flooding has really put that nail in the coffin permanently in China. Now they're also the world's largest renewables developer. Um, they've been going flat out at solar and wind. But what's interesting is the their development of renewables, which is starting to taper off now, that's only just managing to keep up with their incremental growth in electrical demand. So they still have to address their enormous reliance on coal and predominantly dirty coal. So their current grid structure is is approximately 65 to 70% generation from coal. How can they possibly replace that with clean energy other than nuclear? And you just need to look at their alternatives. Their renewable growth profile is just keeping up with their electrical demand profile. Uh, Hydro is tapped out, um, they don't want to be subservient to Russia by building another um, big pipeline through Siberia and Mongolia, um, they don't want to totally uh, distort the LNG markets of the world by trying to get that through gas. So the natural and expected and strategically planned solution is to displace their existing and future coal-fired power needs with nuclear. And because they're both baseload generators, uh, that is a very simple proposition for them to do as time goes on and as they further develop their expertise in building their own Indigenous
0: nuclear reactors. Mm. Okay. Like so many things in life, looking looking to China, um, where they're not enjoying our lobsters at the moment, but I'm sure they'll be coming back, or crayfish as we call them. Here. Now, we're... Running a a bit short of time, so I I think we really do need to have a look at a Tango. Um, You've uh, got the scoping study out in August, uh, a scale back sort of from 20 million ton a year operation back to 8 million tons, obviously making it all that more doable. What uh, what do you need from the uranium price before you uh, get the shovels out and get busy?
1: Well, a Tango 8, which, as you say, Barry, is a more streamlined Development of the Etango ore body. At Etango 8, we worked on this scaling to reduce development hurdles, one of which, as you say, is price. Um, others are capex, which has been slashed dramatically from the um, larger project and other development hurdles as well. In terms of price, this project looks really good at $65 a pound. Um, so at $65, we can produce a post tax NPV of $212 million and a post tax. IRR, um, north of 20%, Mm. and it'll still produce 3.5 million pounds per annum of uranium. So whilst it's significantly smaller than what we'd done a definitive feasibility study on previously, it nonetheless will still rank as one of the largest development projects in the world in this space. And $65 I'm very comfortable with as a price assumption. Our previous DFS was done at $75, and I think that's also A a realistic price to be looking at as we move
0: forward in this sector. Mm. Uh, In the term market, I think we're around $35 a pound. Do you care to make a stab at when $65 might uh, emerge? Yeah, so the the term market, I'd just say about that, uh, it's
1: quoted as $34. There's very little, if any, fixed price contracts being written in the term market. Mm -hmm. Most of them are being written as market related delivery contracts. And the reason we've got $34 sitting there is because the price reporters take the current spot price and they basically just extrapolate it out to when those term contract delivery points start. Uh So unfortunately, 34 offers very, very poor guidance to investors as to what the real state of the market is right now. But to answer your question, Barry, what we know is that there will be a significant broadening of the existing supply and demand deficit in uranium by 2025. And as we said at the beginning of the uh, of the chat, uh, we've had a lot of inventory to work through since Fukushima and the sector's been running a deficit of about 15% or about 20 million pounds by my numbers for the last couple of years. So that's what's contributed to eating into that inventory. And now that we've had a further deficit of another £20 million because of COVID-related disruption this year. That's why I think we will see that inventory coming to an end. Now, by 2025, we've had the Ranger mine closed down um, in January next year. We've had Kominyak, which is a huge mine in Niger, closed down next year as well. We've had some Kazakh production start to deplete And we've had numerous other small mines that are running out of ore at a time when uranium demand is still growing by one5 to 2% compound per annum. Mm. So that demand supply deficit that we already see is going to really gap out by 2025. And that gap is already after taking into account the resumption of production at uh, a number of mines that have been forced into care and maintenance by Uh, low Uranium prices. So if we're looking, my personal view is if we're looking at a serious deterioration of supply-demand dynamics in favour of producers by 2025, we'll see the term contract price run forward of that um, by one to two years. Um, Mm. And it will need to find a balance to bring that new production on. And I also agree with uh, Tim Gitzel and Grant Isaac from Cameco when they say that this market is shaping up for an overshoot. And the nice thing for us is with, with the Tango 8 um, anticipated to be ready for production by 2025, we're positioning ourselves very nicely to take advantage of any overshoot and write some of that value into our initial term contracts that will enable us to get financed and into production.
0: Fascinating story. A lot of day we talk about such big global thematics, but um, here we are, we've got uh, the company, uh, poised uh, to ride that, that wave as uh, climate change, decarbonisation uh, takes hold and the uranium market uh, goes through what you were just saying then. So all looking very interesting f- uh, for the next couple of years. So the new renaissance in uranium could well be upon us. So with that, I'm going to say uh, thanks for your time today, Brandon, and uh, best of luck with uh, future endeavours there. Yeah, thanks, Barry. It's always great, Cheney.